every year when Christmas season comes around, we're always challenged to hold on to the true meaning of Christmas. Even uh, non-Christians, some of them anyway, uh, say things like, well, let's maintain the, the and find the, the true spirit of the holidays and things like that. So it's always an issue. How do we maintain and how do we uh, hold on to the true meaning of Christmas and it doesn't get lost in all the the uh, celebration and materialism and all of that? Even when we know and believe Christmas is about Jesus' birth, sometimes we don't fully uh, appreciate this, the fullness of the significance of it. Uh, we get over-familiar with the accounts of his birth, the stories of his birth, and, and not to minimize that, uh, the stories of his birth are great, and they're awesome in terms of his circumstances. And But we, we see the wonder of it all the more when we see how it was the fulfillment of God's unfolding plan of redemption from the beginning. So that helps us to appreciate it even more. So over the next four weeks, we're going to be talking about um, God's promise of a son and the, looking at the major developments of God's promises in the in the Bible storyline, so the, 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 the Bible is really one unfolding story. It's not just a collection of religious sayings or not just a collection of books sewn together uh, randomly. It's, it's an unfolding story of God's redeeming plan. And so we're going to look in, in broad strokes at the, um, the unfolding plan of, of redemption as it's fulfilled in, in the Christmas story. Today we're going to be considering the promise of a deliverer, promise of a deliverer, and, and, and in doing that, we're asking, why do we need a deliverer? And in asking that, we're really asking, why do we need Christmas? Why is that so important? C.S. Lewis said in his book, Mere Christianity, all that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery, is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God, which will make him happy. The long, terrible story of a man trying to find something other than God, which will make him happy. Some think the Christmas story is just a myth. It's just a story made up, uh, not historical truth. Even more people think that the the roots of the Christmas story, which takes us back to the beginning, back to Genesis, the Genesis account of the origin of creation and people is is a myth. And so the origin of the Christmas story, in order for it to be true, this, the foundation of the Christmas story has to be true as well. So we're going to look at the first promise that was fulfilled on Christmas, the first story of the, the first promise that was uh, f- fulfilled in Christmas. And to appreciate what's going on, we're going to, in this promise, we're going to look at the whole chapter 3 of Genesis. So stand, and we're going to look at chapter 3 of Genesis. We're going to look at this whole account of promise. Of a deliverer. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, 
and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I told you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave gave to be with me, she gave me fruit from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire is to be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of, of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Father, open our eyes that we may see the truth of who Christ is for us in this text. Thank you for giving us truth from so many centuries ago that that describes how we got to where we are in these present times and how we desperately need, need a deliverer. Thank you for your good promise to us. May your spirit give us grace to understand and, and live out these truths. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So keep your Bibles handy. We've got some, a lot of turf to cover. So in order to appreciate what goes on in chapter 3, I need to summarize for you chapters 1 and 2. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He started it all. He made light day and night, separated water from atmosphere, water from land. He made plants, sun, moon, and stars, sea creatures, birds, and land animals. He made everything good. He made man and woman in his image. He told them to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with other image bearers, to develop 
and rule over the, all the creatures. Once he had created man and woman and had given them their assignment, he considered everything very good. He said it was all very good. That's chapter 1. Chapter 2 backs up and gives us a little bit more detail about the creation of man and woman. So we see that God started by creating the man, and then later he makes woman. After creating the man, God puts him in a garden. He planted in Eden. It had trees with beautiful and nutritious fruit. The tree of life was there. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil were in it. And man's duty, man's assignment was, as, as newly created um, human, was to work and keep or guard and watch the garden. So he was to work the garden and guard it, keep it, watch over it. God gives the man and his rules for the garden, and we see this in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So he said, Feel free to eat any from any tree in the fruit, any fruit from any tree in the garden, except this one, don't eat from that, because if you do, you're surely going to die. Literally, dying you shall die. Dying you shall die. You will die immediately spiritually. In other words, you're going to be alienated from, from God, from, from me, God's saying, and you're going, to, um, you're going to be dead to God, and you're going to be defiant toward God. And you'll begin dying physically until you're all the way dead. So you're, you're starting to die, and you're going to die all the way. And then in, um, in verse 18, we see that after the many times during the creation week that the author tells us that God said something, God said, let there be something, or God made something, and he said, and it was good, or he, he saw that it was good. After saying that over and over and over again in chapter 1, we see the first time in, in chapter 2, verse 18, that God said, it is not good. Something is not good. And he says, it's not good that man should be alone. So why was it not good for man to be alone? Well, this is before clothes, so, so it wasn't that he was leaving his clothes all over the garden. Uh, God said he still needed to make a helper for the, for the man, a helper fit for him, suitable for him, a counterpart or a partner. So he needed a special order, a bride for him. So to make what was going to... to what he's going to do for the man, all the more amazing, God brings all the animals to him to see what he would call them. And so he does that, and no one of the animals would make a fit helper for him. So God puts him under anesthesia, takes one of his ribs, and, and builds a woman from it. No dog or cat, no orangutan or, or oriole, no warthog or or. Wombat could fill the need. He needed a woman. So God brings her to the man, and, he, and, he's, and, and the man says these words that every woman wants to hear. You are bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Did any of you try that line? On, I'm calling you woman because, whoa, man, you are a lot better looking than any of these other beasts. What do you say we get married? She says, what do you mean, the other beasts? 
Oh, I didn't mean that you were a beast. I mean that you're the best-looking former rib in the whole garden. And it kind of went downhill from there. This is why I said you need to have your Bibles open. Because I might slip things in that are false. So keep me accountable. The author tells us the man and his wife were naked and were not ashamed. They had no sin. They had no baggage. They had no reason to cover, uh, to, to hide from one another. They were open to God. They were open to one another. And then we get to chapter 3, the chapter that we read. They're on their honeymoon in Eden. When you read, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. Well, that sounds ominous. Why, why is there a crafty animal? He said to the woman, snake talks. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He's trying to get her to question God's word and his character. He's putting a spin to get her to sin. He's spinning God's word. He's spinning the truth. He's not saying outright falsehoods. He just slyly spins it. Sorry. And he's um, so he's he's trying to get her to bind his perspective. The serpentine perspective is this: the limits God has placed on man are holding him back from happiness and significance. The limits God has placed on man is holding him back from happiness and significance. Happiness and significance are only found in breaking through the limits God has placed on us. So the snake leads the woman to suspend her convictions based on God's truth, to see how delicious the fruit looked, how delightful it it was, and how desirable it was to make one wise. So she takes of of its fruit, eats it, and she gives it some to her husband who is there, and he doesn't say anything, he just eats The snake had promised the woman that when she ate from the tree, her eyes would be opened and she would be like God. She would be like God, knowing good from evil. So she'd be like God. God's afraid of the competition. He's holding this back from you. So that's what he's got her into. She would have knowledge of good and evil, free to determine for herself what is right for her. So what happens when they eat? Well, their eyes are opened, and they know that they're naked. Wow, that's an amazing discovery. They feel the shame of being sinners. That's what, that's what they're really experiencing. Alienated from God and one another. And yes, they have now experienced evil for themselves. But they now also experience the guilt of of rebelling against God's goodness and righteousness. They're experiencing that rather than being exalted to God-like status by declaring independence from God, that they are degraded in shame. They lost their source of their happiness and significance and that comes through trusting God as image bearers. And the imprint of of our first parents' sin is on all of us. We're born bent away from God. We're born, we think that freedom is pleasing ourselves and breaking God's boundaries. But that's where true happiness lies. And we, we buy into that. Well, they hear God walking in the garden and they hide. 
like a father who, who can see his children hiding, he says to the man, like he knows where the man is, so he says to the man, even though the man's hiding, where are you? The man says, well, I heard you coming and, and I was afraid, first time he was afraid, because I was naked and I hid. God asks him if he ate the, from the tree that which he commanded him not to eat from. And the man says, well, the woman you gave me, you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. So blame, blame, I couldn't help it. God says to the woman, what have you done? The woman blames the snake. She says, the snake deceived me and, and I ate. God doesn't give the snake any time, to, any chance to answer for himself. He just curses him. He says he is cursed above all the other animals. In other words, the snake among all other animals is cursed, or, or maybe more better to say it this way, he represents the cursing that was placed on the behind-the-scenes entity that was the true object of God's curse. The fact that the snake crawls on his belly and eats the dust symbolizes humiliation and, and subjugation. In other words, that he's been conquered. There are several scriptures that speak of Israel's enemies being face down. So your enemies are, are down on their faces, bowing down before you, and their, their faces in the dust. And we talk that way too. We, um, <clears throat> we, we, we say that, uh, eat my dust. And that's not a nice thing to say, because what you're saying is, hey, I'm, 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 I'm going to defeat you. I'm going to conquer you. And then in verse 15, the first part of verse 15 of chapter 3, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So what does this mean? Well, it means the unholy alliance against God that took place between the woman and the snake is broken. So whatever tie there was between the woman and the snake, God is saying now there's going to be constant enmity, constant hostility. Between you and him and between your offspring and, and his offspring. And that's a good thing because uh, what it means is there will always be uh, and ultimately be at least a, a remnant of humanity that doesn't side with the serpent against God. Not because in themselves they are free from the snake's influence, but because they trust in God's promise of a deliverer, as we will see. Some people think this is just a mythological tale of why, why we don't like snakes. But in reading Genesis, it's clear that the author um, intended this to be historical truth, and uh, that even if some of the aspects of the story are symbolic and point beyond themselves to greater realities, this is true history and true prophecy. It's obvious in the context and becomes more obvious as you follow the Scripture storyline. So as you read through the Scriptures and follow, trace the storyline that is unfolding, that uh, the snake was being used by someone who was very smart, who was a deceiver, who was an enemy of God. He wasted no time in seeking to dominate God's image bearers, who were to rule God's creation, to set them against their creator, to defy his rule and so bring his judgment against them. So what hope was there that they could be delivered from the consequences of their rebellion? 
Well, it's, we see it at the last part of verse 15. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. How does that help? Just some bruising going on? Well, here we, we see that the word offspring, so God was talking about the offspring of the, of, of the snake and offspring of the woman. We see here that the word offspring carries a dual sense. On the one hand, it refers to all the woman's descendants, or at least a line of her descendants. But in this last line of God's curse on the snake, it also refers to one of her descendants, one of her offspring, one who will bruise the serpent's head. And the snake, or the entity behind the snake, not just his offspring, will bruise the head of, of the woman's offspring. So talk about these singular offsprings, of the snake and the woman, bruising one another. Since the snake is on his belly and, and eats dust, the most he can do is strike the heel of the woman's offspring. So he, he can't quite do much damage. He just strikes the heel. The woman's offspring is, is able to inflict far more damage by striking the head of the snake. Amazingly, embedded in God's curse on the serpent is a promise. So this is God's cursing the serpent. He's, he hasn't even talked to the, the people yet. He's, he's just cursing the snake. But in, the, in his cursing the snake is a promise of hope that humankind can overcome the consequences of the snake's venom. So to understand this, we have the advantage of thousands of years of, of unfolding of God's plan and, and of his revelation. Who is the offspring of the woman? Well, next week we're going to look at more detail about God's offspring and people that he has chosen. But uh, we, if you look at Genesis 5, you see Seth is one of the sons of Adam and Eve born. And you can trace it from Seth to Noah to Abraham to Isaac, Jacob, Judah and David, up to Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate offspring of promise. In Galatians 3.16, we see this. Uh, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Christ would be the one who would defeat the servant and put him under his feet, as it were. So you see this in 1 Corinthians 15, 25. For he, talking about Christ, he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. So, especially by, by bruising the head of, of the snake. And then we see in Revelation, the enemy behind the snake is, look at this, Revelation 12, verses 9 through 11, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to, to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God, kingdom of our God, and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers, which later on in Revelation calls him the, the, the rest of the woman's offspring, so it talks about, Christ being the woman's offspring, and, and then his, his, the people of Christ being also the woman's offspring. The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love their lives, they love not their lives, even unto death. So the serpentine devil bruised Christ's heel by orchestrating his death on the cross. That's how the serpent... The devil bruised Christ 
heal, so to speak. But in doing that, it became the very means of his defeat. So he, he, he does what damage he can to Christ, and that becomes what takes him down. Christ deprived the devil of any authority he had over people through paying the penalty for their sins and breaking its power over, over them. Christ's people conquer the devil by the blood of the lamb, as it said. So that means Christ as the substitutionary sacrifice, the lamb of God, because that is how he conquered the devil, by how the devil, how Christ bruised his head was on the cross, removing his authority over people through paying for the sins. We read of the ultimate defeat of the devil in Revelation 20. It's a two-pronged um, defeat. So in Revelation 22, we see that he, an angel, seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Then he gets some release time and orchestrates an, an attack on God's people. So he gets released for a while, and he goes back to his old deceptive tricks, and he, he brings up a, a rebellion against God's people to destroy them. And then in Revelation 20.10, the devil... And, who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So thus the crushing, the, the bruising, the striking of the head of the devil, of the snake, by the offspring of the woman, Jesus. So this is what God has promised, to, how he's promised to deliver us by, by, by these means. Then he says to the woman, she's going to have pain in her areas of highest happiness and significance for carrying out God's mandate to be fruitful and multiply. So how is she to carry out God's mandate to be fruitful and multiply to, as wife and mother? And, and so she's going to have pain in that, pain in her relationships of caring. He says, I will multiply your pain. You were to be fruitful and multiply. Now I'm going to multiply your pain in, in uh, multiplying image bearers. And then God said to the man that the ground is cursed because of you. Romans 8.20 tells us that God subjected the whole creation to futility. It's broken. It doesn't work. It's volatile and, and unfriendly. Thankfully, there's still much good in creation. But famines and earthquakes and tornadoes and diseases and destruction by insects were not part of God's original design. God said the man would have pain in his areas of, of happiness and, and significance, his highest fulfillment and significance in carrying out God's mandate to be fruitful and multiply in his work and in providing for his family and in eating. He says, you're going to have a lot of pain in eating. That's what he says in verses 17 and 19 of chapter 3. So, so man and woman, they're alienated from God, and they have pain and suffering and conflict and aging until they at last turn back to, to dust. The man utters, uh, he, he names his wife Eve, and that means life. So he names his, his wife life. as I think it's a sign of, of faith and hope that that. There is still life. God is going to give us life. And God covers their, uh, they, their clothing wasn't adequate, so God had to provide for them adequate covering for their shame and guilt and for their, uh, the new hostile environment they're in. So it's, it's a, speaking about how God has to provide covering for our shame and our guilt. 
And then God sends the couple out of the out of Eden to work the ground, keeping them from access to the tree of life. So, they, yes, now they knew good and evil, but in defying God and presuming to determine good and evil for them for themselves, he is now alienated from God. Now dying he shall die, and while he is alive he is subject to pain and suffering. But God in his mercy, before they can eat from the tree of life and live forever in a sinful state, alienated from God, and he sends them out of the garden. Man failed to keep and guard the garden, so now man is kept and guarded from entering the garden by Jedi cherubim with lightsabers. That's what it says. Do you have your Bibles open? God's judgment of man, in God's judgment of man, he shows mercy. God suspends the full death sentence contained in his word, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. He suspends that somewhat because what, what that meant is ultimately they would be existing forever, alienated from God in grief and pain. How can God be true to his word, yet deliver man from this sentence and restore him to a right relationship with him, free from sin, enjoy forever? How can God do that? How can, he, how can he both be perfectly just and show mercy at the same time? Well, as we've seen, no sooner had our first parents brought the death sentence upon themselves and their offspring than, than did God put his plan in motion. His first installment was the promise of, of a deliverer. He would be a human offspring because humanity needed to get the victory over, over the results of yielding to the snake's deception. So it had to be a, a human being. But since all human offspring would now be infected with sin and deserve the death penalty, how can a human being deliver other humans from, from sin? What, what did he need to be? What, what did we need for Christmas? Spoiler alert, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish forever, should not be alienated from God, should not be forever living in suffering pain by being alienated from God, but have eternal life. And also 2 Corinthians 5.21, you don't have that on the screen, but it's, for our sake he made him to be sin, he made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what we needed for Christmas. Father, we thank you that in your awesome wisdom, we're, we're stunned by how you, how you did it. You created a perfect world that was invaded by an enemy that brought us into rebellion against you, alienating us from you, and, and we deserve the death penalty. Dying we shall die. That's what we deserve. But you pr have provided a way through sending your son to rescue us, to redeem us, to deliver us from the snake's venom and restoring us to a, a right relationship with you. We have that now. We're not totally free yet. We recognize we still have pain in childbearing and in work, and we, still have, we live in a painful 
sinful, crazy world. So we're, we're longing for that day when, when Eden is restored and, 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 and then some, in the new heavens and new earth. But we're, we're grateful that we can trust completely in your promise of, of the Deliverer, Jesus, who is able to rescue us from sin and give us life. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm not going to sing, so I'm just going to say, if you need prayer, come up here and we'll pray for you, pray with you. We pray God's grace, mercy, and peace to be upon you throughout this week. And we'll see you tonight for soup and bread. Blessings.